Master Tavern Keeper's History of the Old World. Right, well, let's get on to the cities of Nehekara and the kings, viziers and princes who were involved in the rebellion against the treacherous priest-king, Nagash. Yeah, yeah, please. Spare no details. Oh, really? Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I uh, insist. Well, in that case then, I have one more topic to discuss before proceeding any further. It is with regards to the gods, kings and courtiers of the cities we're about to discuss. I want to talk about their names, because we aren't actually sure if the names we use for the ancient heroes and villains of Nehekara in our history books are correct at all. In point of fact, the whole palaver of how to write and pronounce them in our modern tongues has caused countless tears of consternation for historians as they have tried to unravel the ancient history of the Tomb Kings before their awakening as the uh, tireless undead. One man above all others in this field has done much to unravel the problem. The scholar Alan Gartner of Altdorf, and uh, now also his son. Although it is worth noting that the work of Ibn Jalaba and the other notary Arabian scholars that I will draw upon is still all but unknown in the empire. But um, anyway, I had the pleasure of seeing old Gartner at the Grand University of Nulm as part of a speaking tour he was doing back then when I was a student. It was most fascinating. I even bought his book, An Introduction to the Written Language of the Nehekarans, and got it signed. It's on my bookshelf downstairs. Of course, this was before his uh, mysterious death in the Great Museum of Altdorf and the... Uh, disappearance of the embalmed tomb king that he had donated to the museum. I honestly can't imagine what happened, who could be responsible, and why. He was such an amiable man. Oh well. Anyway, the nub of the translation problem is this. Written Nehekaran has no vowels. They have them in the spoken language, of course, but they don't write them. The glyphs of their uh, writing system, primarily there to deliver meaning, only have consonants represented. Native speakers instinctively know what vowels to insert with each glyph, but to everyone else it is extremely challenging. And that is not all. Even the order in which the glyphs are written can also change the pronunciation of certain syllables. For example, Sha becomes Za when certain glyphs precede it, but it can also change to ha if the same glyphs follow it. It's a bloody nightmare to try and unravel, I can tell you. The opacity of the written form of the language has led to all sorts of versions of the same individual's name popping up in the history books. This has, obviously, sown confusion like a mad farmer with too much grain. Fathers 
are oft confused with sons, brothers with uncles, and sisters with mothers. In other places, the same individual has become many, as his name is translated in different ways by different authors, and the deeds of one man become the deeds of him and his imaginary siblings and offspring. The quagmire is bottomless. Yet another factor in this uh, confusion is that in certain cities, rulers would also change their names upon taking the crown. And, piled on top of that, some even changed their royal names mid-reign after achieving great victories. Confusion with names was particularly the case in Lamia, perhaps also due to the uh, obfuscating influence of Neferata after she took power. Although, that is a uh, harder to quantify. Anyway, here are a few examples of differing versions of names to give you an idea of what I mean. I have read the name of uh, Neferata's father, the king of Lamia, written as both Lamizar and Lamasheptra. The name of his son and the husband to his sister Neferata, I've seen written as both Lamizash and Lashamizar. And I've seen the deeds of both father and son confused together. Even the renowned Neferata herself, I have seen written as Neferatem in an uh, old history volume I found in Miragliano. And uh, this is just the confusion pertaining to very well-known individuals. As you get to lesser-known historical figures, the errors grow and multiply. I mention all this just to highlight the inaccuracies that abound when it comes to our knowledge of this period and, hopefully, inoculate you against putting too much faith in the dates and facts that you find in the history books. Remember this. Just because it's written down doesn't make it true. Sometimes it is mere error, but sometimes it is deliberate. There is a class of liars in every generation who see themselves as uh, influencers and these uh, gatekeepers have no qualms about twisting the world around them, be it through trends, fashions, current events, or the era's history. All are simply there to serve their own selfish ends and agendas. I would recommend you hearken to my old tutor's oft-spoken refrain. Trust neither the man nor the woman who gives them advice unbidden. However, in spite of all this, I've tried my best to separate the wheat from the chaff, and so I hope the information I uh, present to you is as close to the actual events and facts as is uh, humanly possible. But I can't guarantee that I weeded out all of the bad, so my apologies beforehand. Anyway, let's get out of this uh, dead-end line of reasoning and back to the cities of the undead in Nehekara. We just finished talking about the so-called Charnel Valley that links east and west to Nehekara, and is lovingly tended to 
by the pious, or perhaps not so pious, as I will get to soon, hands of the Grand Vizier of Qatar, Sehenesmet. So, let us begin here. As we discussed earlier, Qatar was built upon the western entrance to the Valley of Kings. It was one of the biggest city-states, and the anchoring point for the armies from the east that were to do battle against Nagash during the rebellion. Qatar's military strength at this time was built around one of the strongest fighting forces in all of Nehekara, for the white marble and alabaster walls of Qatar was home to the famed Tomb Guard. The Tomb Guard were the king's elite. They were exceptional warriors, governed by a code of strict discipline and the attainment of perfection in martial skill. In battle, the Tomb Guard formed unwavering ranks of armoured warriors and spilled the blood of countless enemies of the city, numerous armies having been dashed against their unyielding, implacable shield walls in the city's history. The Tomb Guard wore fine suits of leather armour and bronze scale, studded with jewels mined from the Valley of Kings, and adorned with precious metals. They carried lavishly crafted shields, inlaid with skulls, bones, and other symbols of the city's patron god, Shepesh, of whom we shall speak more of later. In battle, the Tomb Guard wielded weapons that had powerful incantations of cursing imbued into them, and these allowed them to carve their way through the ranks of their enemies, felling their foes with each lethal blow. The prowess of the Tomb Guard of Qatar saw the formation adopted by other cities as time went on, but none surpassed the warriors of the White Palace. It was the bravest and the best soldiers of the city's army who were elevated to the Tomb Guard, and the competition was stiff, for the rewards were second to none. The role was twofold, though. In addition to being the anvil of the army on the battlefield, they would also serve as bodyguards to the king and his princes. Elevation into the ranks of the Tomb Guard was one of the few ways that a warrior, uh, not of noble birth, could ever hope to enter the royal palace. The Tomb Guard lived in comparative luxury, each having a dozen slaves to tend to their war gear so they could keep their attentions focused on their sacred duties. The preservation of the king's life and the protection of the city. However, the trappings of wealth were secondary to the true reward granted to these warriors for they were honoured with the privilege of sharing in immortality. The prospect of serving their king for eternity inspired these soldiers to heroic acts of bravery. They would die where they stood rather than retreat, and tales of them charging against the most hopeless odds without thoughts for their own survival litter the annals of ancient Qatar. Upon their own death, or that of their lords. They were mummified by the lich priests of the mortuary cult and buried close to their king's sarcophagus to guard the inner sanctum of the necropolis in death, just as they had guarded the white palace in life. Although the embalming rituals used were uh, nowhere near as elaborate as the uh, ceremonies that the tomb kings and the tomb princes underwent, it has to be said. The tomb guard were entombed with their armour and weapons, their bodies further decorated with gold bracelets, headdresses, and scarab-shaped brooches that fastened parchments, proclaiming their feats and deeds. Ah, yeah, 
future qualities I too aspire to, although I will uh, try and uh, avoid the ritual suicide and mummification, if at all possible. <laughs> ah, yes, I think that would be uh, most sensible. But they were the best of the best, both noble and loyal, the perfect warriors. And they are still with us as undead revenants of their former glory. No less potent, although uh, a little less quick of the mark. Anyway, on to the city they guarded itself. It was no less inspiring. A large majority of the city was carved out of the rock of the Canyon Pass, itself comprised of large amounts of pale marble, and the great palace at the city's heart shone white in the midday sun, as did its walls. The height and width of these, and the soldiers manning them, were not Qatar's sole defences, though. They were protected by strong wards to fend off magical forces as well. And it was a place the populace wanted to defend. The palace was dotted with small ornamental parks and wide-open squares, within which fountains fed by the springs that ran beneath the city lay. It was a place of calm beauty in the blistering heat of the desert. Also, Countless numbers of huge pillars carved from the valley's rock face lined the hundreds of steps that led up to the palace gates. The city was also dominated, like the Charnel Valley itself, by thousands of exquisite statues and monuments to the gods. In particular, Shapesh, as he was called in Qatar, although more commonly known as Usidian elsewhere, sometimes translated as Usinin in contemporary history books. But, irrespective of his name, he was the god of the underworld, known to us as the god Moor. The statues of the city were originally built by a professional class of Nehekaran artisans called Necrotects. Although the uh, current undead ruler of Qatar, Sehenismet, has also repaired and built many since, although he was no artisan by vocation. Now, as we touched on earlier, Sehenesmet is indeed one of the most accomplished of the tomb kings when it comes to the care and upkeep of the statues and monuments of Qatar. But he was not always thus. Sehenesmet's love of the art of architecture and sculpture was born of and flamed by the legendary works of Ramhotep, the visionary. And no discussion of Qatar is complete without mention of this mythic figure, and his own small part in the fall of the royal line of the city of Qatar. In ancient Nehekara, both before and after the reign of the usurper, the finest necrotechs in the two lands were commissioned to design and oversee the construction of the grand burial monuments that the tomb kings of old are so famed for, in addition to the uh, many other great pieces of architecture and sculpture that still endure to this very day. Upon completion of a particular tomb, though, the necrotect involved was expected to commit ritual suicide and be entombed with their creation. And before anyone asks, I do not know the reason. Religious zealotry, perhaps? A demonstration of power? You know, the usual it was rather a wasteful practice in my opinion, though. But who are we to judge? The world has turned many times over in the 2,000 years since, and 
the understanding of such things is lost to us. Ah, yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, anyway, Ramhotep was a particularly renowned artisan of the later period of Nehekaran history, before a calamity overtook their civilization. This was around uh, 1,185 years before the imperial calendar, so uh, 400 years or more after the defeat of Nagash, in case you were wondering. Ramhotep was a genius, and much lauded by his tutors, and greatly envied by his peers, as is often the case with such individuals. But it was not this that made him such a singular figure. Ramhotep was also of a similar opinion to us with regards being entombed after the completion of a single monument. To him, it seemed rather wasteful, for there were always more ambitious and grander projects that needed his attention. He felt the practice would be denying the world his potential creations, and so he solved the problem in a most creative way, as is the way of genius. Ramhotep chose which projects to work on very carefully, seeking out those being undertaken by the uh, most arrogant necrotechs of the age, always standing in the shadow of uh, these lesser men, and ensuring that they would take his place in each tomb that he had a hand in creating. Ramhotep posed as a uh, starry-eyed student to the well-respected Ramakat the creative, as a fawning sycophant to uh, Emra the artisan, and so on and so on to another dozen legendary architects. Ramhotep tricked each of these rival necrotects into uh, consuming large amounts of the highly addictive blood lotus, and ensuring that they entered into a drug-addled fugue that he was able to stretch out for months. In their absence, Ramhotep recreated the ceremonial mask each wore, each one so perfect that none could tell the difference, and assumed their identity. With this accomplished, he was able to take control of their project and bring it to completion. Well, let's say near to completion. Each time, shortly before the monument was uh, finished, he would disappear, leaving a very confused necrotect in his wake, who was then sacrificed and interred within the tomb in Ramotep's stead. It is said that they always protested loudly, but their words were quickly dismissed as the ravings of a mad, blood lotus-addicted artist. Anyway... In this way, he oversaw the construction of many magnificent monuments during his lifetime. Our old friend, the Arabian scholar Ibn Jalaba, said that he came across a uh, copy of a letter from the king of Qatar's vizier, Sehenesmet, with regard to Ramhotep, that shed a great deal of light on the end of the life of the artisan. My lord... Fountain of greatness and revered one before the gods. He we have sought for so long has finally been found. It has taken many years, but my suppositions were correct. My lord, 
architect is well aware of my great love of architecture and my fascination with the great new wonders of our age. The grand necropolis of La Cetra, the monuments of eternal death in Azandri, the monoliths of the Great Plains, and many other such breathtaking monuments to a number of slumbering kings. My lord is also aware of my theory that one man was responsible for them all, despite the fact that each was apparently made by a different necrodict. It did not make sense, for the unmistakable style and construction techniques involved in each were simply too similar. At last, I am a proven light. I have found him, the artisan responsible for all of these, and his name is Lamhotep. His craftsmanship is second to none. It was he that created the mysteriously lifelike statues in the eastern portion of the Valley of Kings that inspired such awe in the city of Mahrak, not the deceased Neklotekt Emla, as was originally claimed. After long negotiations, Lamhotep has finally agreed to help create the sepulchre of the heavens. And so, Lamhotep, now nearing the end of his life, agreed to build a pyramid, now known as the uh, sepulchre of the heavens, to rival the majesty of the great pyramid of Kemri. Cetra's Pyramid. Fragments of the records of Qatar, of which there are few, for reasons I will come to shortly, indicate that thousands of work gangs slaved and died under the burning desert sun to build the monument, none daring to uh, slacken their pace in the presence of the necrotect. He was quick with the lash and would dole out fierce punishments to those who would jeopardise his art, for he was consumed by a frenzied compulsion to create and build, and no matter how quickly his underlings accomplished his tasks, it was never fast enough for Ramhotep. And eventually, in his last days, before the last cornerstone was heaved into position, Ramhotep fashioned for himself a death mask and prepared himself for his final rest. But excuse me, Master Tavernkeeper, I have a question. After dodging death for so long, why the uh, change of heart? Ah, uh, yes. Well, Ibn Jalaba theorized that Ramhotep's vision stretched past his mortal lifespan, and as his body was ravaged and withered by old age, he realized that the only way he could continue his work was if he was granted the honour of mummification and the chance at eternal life in the future. Ah, yeah, 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 I see. The looming threat of imminent death often has a way of uh, 
realigning our priorities. Indeed. Anyway, the King of Qatar was uh, mightily pleased with his monument and, as was hoped for, he rewarded Ramhotep with an exquisite burial ceremony, ensuring he remained undisturbed for countless centuries afterwards within his splendid tomb. However, although his rest was peaceful, intrigue, tragedy, treason and machinations were afoot in Qatar. Now, this tomb, the sepulchre of the heavens, is of particular interest because it shows that Qatar did in fact have a king. For in certain records, it claims that the city did not. And it was in fact ruled by the priesthood under the command of the vizier of the city and always had been. And certainly some 35 years later, at the time of the great plagues and then the ritual of Nagash, a magical spell that killed off all life in Nehegara, but also had the uh, unintended consequences of raising the tomb kings back to uh, life, well, on life. It was indeed a vizier that ruled in Qatar. However, the letter I quoted earlier and the presence of the monument of the king at least shows that this was not always the case. After the death of this last king, many records and monuments chronicling the rulership of the kings of Qatar were either destroyed or altered as a coup d'etat, as the Bretonians say, toppled the established royal family and installed a theocratic leadership under the control of the vizier in the city instead. And you'll never guess who was the vizier and ruler in those final days. It was Sehenesmet. But uh, he seemed uh, so loyal. Ah, well, indeed. But uh, that was not the case. So, let us just finish talk of Qatar with a bit of a juicy, delicious gossip. Ibn told me that he uh, found an ancient parchment in the catacombs of the court of the Sultan of Kasabar concerning the origin of Sehenesmet. It described how his mother, a beautiful young priestess in the mortuary cult of Qatar, had caught the eye of the prince Sekere. By the way that the scroll was uh, written, it seems that he uh, forced himself upon the priestess and, as a result of uh, this act, Sehenesmet was born and the boy grew up within the mortuary cult, with vengeance in his heart. Prince Sekere eventually became King Sekere, and Sehenesmet, as the leading lich priest in the mortuary cult, became his most trusted vizier. Over the course of many years, the royal family began to dwindle as a spate of poisonings took them, one by one, until only the king remained. He too sick and dying. It was at this time that Sehenesmet finally managed to find Ramhotep and bring him back to the palace of Qatar. Eventually, the king died of his illness and was interred in his tomb. With no one left to uh, succeed him, Sehenesmet took control and immediately started to erase all of the monuments and records of the royal family, turning the city into a city without a king. Although this turn of events did not last long, as a mere 35 years later, 
All of Nehekara died, only to be reborn as the uh, undead due to the uh, machinations of Nagash. All except the uh, immortal lich priests of the mortuary cult, that is, who never fell prey to the power of Nagash. But more on all that another day. Anyway, I mention all of this to highlight one thing, and one thing only. Because Sehenesmet destroyed so many records pertaining to the old kings of Qatar, we do not know the name of the king during the rebellion against Nagash. But what we do know is this. He was loyal to the usurper. What? Qatar sided with the uh, great necromancer. Indeed. But we have lingered a lot longer on this city than I intended and discussed much more than we probably needed to. Apologies, everyone. Uh, no, 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 no. It was fascinating. But uh, before we move on, I have uh, one last question. What of the artisan, Lamhotep? Did he not awaken as uh, so many of the dead did? Ah, yes. Well, he did indeed. Although it was hundreds of years later, according to the uh, Tuareg I spoke to. Very few of Ramhotep's works had endured the centuries unscathed, with half of his creations lying forgotten beneath the dunes of the desert, and the other half having been uh, battered by sandstorms. He was eventually reawoken by Sehenesmet, in the hope that he might learn further secrets from the master artisan to uh, further his own artistry. However, upon awakening from his deathly slumber, Ramhotep was horrified at the loss and damage to his uh, previous works and immediately began upon the task of excavating and restoring his marvels. The centuries had dulled neither his enthusiasm nor his skills and the statues that uh, received his attention were quickly restored to their former majesty and, coupled with the incantations that he learned from the vizier, saw them striding into battle as if they were carved only yesterday. And to this day, he works relentlessly to maintain his masterpieces, travelling across the land in his uh, unrelenting task. The nomads of the desert told me that such is the likeness between these creations and the gods themselves that the deities of Nehekara have blessed them, gifting them divine protection in battle. Thus, Ramhotep leads an army of walking statues intent on two things. The restoration of the glory of the past and revenge against the cities of the living that have defiled his works. Turning the bones of the inhabitants of these uncultured civilizations into a vast mausoleum built from the bones of his foes. Anyway, I think that is enough on Qatar for now. Next, we are to head north, parallel to the World's Edge Mountains, across the Ash River to the upper shores of the Great Mortis River and the city of Numas. <laughs>